Welcome to the Beacon broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com, beaconbaptist.com. The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. Back to John chapter 15. We open our Bibles once again to this important passage in God's Word, where Christ, in preparing his disciples for his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven, teaches them what they need to know in order to be the pillars of the church that is being founded after the departure of Christ. These apostles are going to be the spokesmen for Christ after Christ goes away. And they certainly don't seem prepared for that at the time he's speaking to them in John 15. But by the time that they are thrust into service, they are well prepared. And we read about it in the book of Acts. We see how effective Peter was. We see how effective other apostles were. We see how effective Paul, the apostle born out of due season, was. We see how God took men, ordinary men, and prepared them for extraordinary service and for amazing results, so that it was actually charged that they had turned the world upside down. And they didn't do that in their own strength. They did that in the power of the Holy Spirit, but what Christ is telling them, and beyond them is also telling us today, in the Upper Room Discourse was part of that preparation for that wonderful explosion of the gospel of Jesus Christ across the world within a matter of decades. It really is a remarkable story. So thank you for joining me this day, which is Sunday December 11, and thank you for helping us financially to keep the Beacon broadcast on this station, and thank you for considering a year-end gift in December to help us with the cost of this ministry. Well, we are looking, first of all, at the analogy of the vine, secondly, four lessons from the vine analogy, and third, and finally, two exhortations from this passage. The analogy of the vine we've covered most of on previous broadcasts, though we haven't quite finished it, but I remind you that the basic elements involve Jesus, the true vine, his father, the vine dresser, the followers of Christ as branches out of the vine, and the fact that God is actively involved with all the branches, whether genuine or counterfeit. He is busy removing fruitless branches and pruning fruitful ones. And there are a number of declarations that we can draw from this. 
And I'm going to read the passage and then go back quickly to just state the ones we've already covered as we come to the fifth one that we really haven't covered yet, and then on to some lessons and exhortations. But here are the words of Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciple. Now before we get back into the direction that we started a week or two ago, and we'll continue today, I think I promised you on the broadcast last week that I would at least give some attention to that promise of prayer that we find in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Now, there are other similar statements in the New Testament. We're not going to try to take up all the others. We'll just take a look at this one. But promises like this are often thought to tell us that whatever we desire, if we have enough faith when we pray, it will be granted to us. Well, just consider carefully, just consider carefully the words of this text. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You see, there is a condition, isn't there? This isn't a blanket promise that whatever anyone asks... If they believe, they'll have it. It's not a name it and claim it. It's not saying that every believer who has a desire will have it granted if he will just believe that God answers prayer. No, there are two stipulations, actually, in this text. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. So, there's something that is necessary to shape our prayers in such a way that God will answer them. It is a wonderful prayer promise, but let's consider what is said. If you abide in me, if you live in me, if you draw your strength from me, if you find your delight in me, if your communion with me, your fellowship with me is growing and is vital, and is the most precious thing in your life, then you are on the way to qualifying for this prayer promise. 
Think about what I just said and see if that describes you. And secondly, if my words abide in you. If the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible, is living in you. Living in you to the extent that it is going to shape your desires and therefore shape your prayers, shape your requests. Your requests are not going to be self-centered. They're not going to be carnal. They're not going to be earthly focused. They are going to be focused on Christ and his honor and his kingdom and his gospel and what promotes his cause and you being a part of that. And in that situation, this kingdom context of which you are thoroughly involved and completely committed, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That's what the promise is all about. Let's think for a moment of some examples down through history of people who have had amazing answers to prayer. I heard a speaker recently talking about the remarkable George Mueller of Bristol, England, who started an orphanage. I think he started out with about 30 children that were dependent upon him for their food and for their shelter and for their schooling and for all the expenses that was necessary to keep them going because they had no parents to supply for them anymore. And as that ministry grew and grew and grew and grew, he eventually was supporting, I think, 2,000 orphans in different orphanages in several different locations and did it without asking anyone for money. He didn't have a fundraising machine. He didn't have a um, a, a prayer I mean, a um, a mail a mailing list or some way of contacting people and and asking them for support. He didn't have a PR man or machine in order to raise the money for this ministry. All of the funds, all of the things supplied, came in answer to prayer. Here was a man who believed in prayer, who was obviously totally committed to Christ, who was indeed abiding in Christ, whose the words of Scripture were abiding in him. He was saturated with the Word of God, and he spent serious amounts of time in prayer every day, and God answered his prayers in a remarkable way because they all had to do with the interests of Christ's kingdom, and in his case, primarily had to do with the care of the orphans that God had given to him. And so if he ran out of food, he prayed, and God answered prayer. If he needed funds to build a new building, to house more orphans, he prayed, and God answered that request over and over and over and over. There's some remarkable stories about a time when the ministry was still small, and the 30 or so so orphans were gathered around the breakfast table, and there wasn't a morsel of food in the house to feed them, but... George Mueller had them gather around the table and then said, let's bow and ask God to supply to give us this day our daily bread. And no sooner had he prayed than there was a knock at the door, as I recall, and a baker was there and he said, I just couldn't sleep. God woke me up. He prompted me to get up early and go to my bakery and bake fresh bread and to bring it to you. And here it is. And so there was the bread they needed for their breakfast that morning and probably for their meals for the rest of the day and maybe even beyond that. 
And then, scarcely had he finished, then a milkman knocked at the door and he said, my cart has broken down, the wheel is coming off or something, and I need to offload this milk so that I can move my cart. Would you take it? And they gladly took, (laughs) I don't know how many gallons, probably, who knows, umpteen gallons of milk that were that were available to them right then. They were doing him a favor, so he didn't want to pour it out on the, in the gutter in the street. He gave it to somebody where it had some usefulness. He, he, he had to get rid of it, and they gladly received it. And so there, on just one instance, in answer to prayer, the prayer was answered completely and fully in exactly the, the measure needed to supply the need that the prayer raised. And think about it again. This prayer had to do not with something for George Mueller personally, not for his well-being, not for his financial growth, not for some thing that he would like to have personally. It was for Christ's kingdom. And so these prayers that he prayed were an outgrowth of his abiding in Christ and Christ's word abiding in him. And guess what? Lo and behold, his prayers were answered in remarkable ways. Oh, I wonder what God would do in our churches. I wonder what God would do in our missions, organizations, and endeavors. I wonder what God would do if we would commit ourselves to him fully and ask him for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. Ask him for the establishment of churches. Ask him for revival in our land. Ask him for the success of the gospel in other places. Ask him for specific needs that have to do with the advancement of the gospel. I just wonder what he might do. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what you desire. Recognizing that When those first two conditions are met, your desires are going to be God-honoring desires. Ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Now, back to the analogy of the vine. We have covered the following statements. I'll just repeat them and then move on. But this text shows us that believers are created by the power of Christ's word. It tells us, secondly, that believers have a responsibility to abide in the vine. There's something here that we are to do. We are to work at strengthening this connection and staying connected to the vine. Now, I'm not going to go back through all the theological questions that that may answer. I just tell you that's what Jesus says. You Abide in me. You stay in me. You persevere in your relationship with me. Keep me, Lord, oh, keep me cleaving to thyself and still believing. That's what we are to do. Number three, failure to abide has serious consequences. Limbs that do not abide, do not have life, do not bear fruit, They drop off, they are cut off, they are cast off, and they are cast into the fire. Number four, successful abiding is dependent upon Christ's word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. 
successful abiding is dependent upon Christ's word. And finally, abiding is the key to fruitfulness, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Isn't that amazing? Abiding is the key of fruitfulness, and that fruitfulness brings glory to God, and that fruitfulness evidences our claim as disciples. That's what that last phrase means. By this my Father is glorified by your fruitfulness, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples, or so you will manifest yourself to be my disciples. This is evidence that you are my disciples. Question, are you a disciple of Christ? Question, if you say yes, if you answer that question yes, the next question is, how do you know? What do you look at? What do you point to? What are you examining in your life that would lead you to believe that you are truly a disciple of Christ? Because this text in John fifteen eight tells us that it is our fruit-bearing that evidences that we are disciples. By this my Father is glory that glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So you will evidence the fact that you have been made a disciple of Christ. Well, let's talk about four lessons from this vine analogy. Number one, the danger of religious presumption. Oftentimes, people assume that they are Christians. But, where is the evidence? Where is the fruit? Where is the manifestation that you are connected to the vine? That the life of the vine is flowing into you, and you, as one of the branches, are bearing fruit. In the case of of this vine, it would be a grapevine, you are bearing grapes. In the case of our Christian lives, that we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, and that our lives are touching the lives of others fruitfully, and helping them, and pointing lost people to Christ, and and strengthening other believers, and helping to build Christ's church, and advancing the cause of the gospel, and doing it effectively. Where's the evidence of that? Because there's the danger of religious presumption of thinking, because I am a church member, then I am saved, I am a a branch in Christ vine, because I am a professing Christian, because of this, because of that. The real evidence is not, have you prayed a prayer? Have you walked an aisle? Have you signed a card? Have you been baptized in water? Have you joined a church? Or any number of other things that people often look to as evidence that they are a Christian. The question is, are you bearing spiritual fruit? And so, please do not succumb to the danger of religious presumption. Number two, we must learn the lesson of divine pruning. That's not a pleasant reality, but it is a reality that we need to be aware of. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. 
that it may bear more fruit. He prunes. This answers some of the why me types of questions. Something comes into our lives that's painful and difficult, and why is that happening to me? Why am I suffering? I'm following Christ. Why doesn't Christ shelter me from this? Shouldn't things like this come to unbelievers, not to Christians? You're not reading the Bible, certainly not reading it very carefully, certainly not paying attention to this passage. This passage talks about divine pruning. This passage talks about the desirability of divine pruning. This passage talks about the necessity of divine pruning. This passage tells us that it is necessary that the Father prune us in order that we order that we bear more fruit. Every one of us have things in our lives that are a hindrance to fruit bearing. Sometimes we know what they are and we're stubborn about them and here comes the pruning knife and before long we are made willing when we were unwilling to deal with it before. Sometimes, oftentimes, it's things in our lives that we're not even aware of until God brings his pruning knife and begins to cut on us, and then we begin to see things that we didn't see before and recognize obstacles in our lives that we were not aware of, but now we become aware of them by the mirror of God's Word and by the pruning work of God the Father working in our lives, and those things are cut away, those things are dealt with, those things are removed from our life so that we can be more fruitful. I'm confident that the biggest obstacles in the way of the advancement of Christ's kingdom in this world are not the enemies of Christ, not the unconverted, not the enemies, not the hostile, not the ones who desire to persecute, though they're certainly active at it, not even the devil who is a great foe of Christ and of his people, The biggest obstacles to the advancement of Christ's kingdom are Christians who have weights and sins which so easily beset us. So please understand the necessity of divine pruning so that you can welcome it. And a third lesson that we've already looked at is the centrality of God's word. You're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you, verse 3. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done to you. Verse 7. The centrality of God's Word. It has power. It has life. We need to understand the centrality of God's Word in evangelism. Too much evangelism is more like psychology, more like salesmanship techniques, more like emotional appeals rather than a message from the Word of God. Evangelism tends to be powerless because it is largely wordless. Church growth and development techniques are often powerless because there is so little of the Word in in all that is done. We've got to understand the power of God's Word and trust it and value it and desire it and seek it and partake of it and utilize it the centrality of God's Word. And then a fourth lesson from this violent analogy is the imperative of spiritual fruit-bearing. It's not an option. It's not an option. 
every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 2, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Why? Because there is no fruit. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. It's not an option. This is what disciples of Christ do. They bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, not all the same amount, but all are fruit bearers if they are true Christians. So what is the fruit in your life? Where is the evidence of the fruit in your life? What is the description of the fruit in your life? Is it a biblical description? Is it Christ-likeness? Is it the fruit of the Spirit? And so, a couple of exhortations that grow out of this passage would be the following two. Number one, in the light of this, every one of us should renew our commitment to God's Word. Do you honor it? Do you read it? Do you attend places where the word is explained, is, it is exposited? Do you receive the word as it comes to you? Are you involved in proclaiming the word? You say, well, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a teacher. Yes, but you can be involved in some facet of the proclamation of God's Word. You may do so by supporting missionaries who are proclaiming it. You may do so by supporting and encouraging a faithful pastor who is proclaiming it. That's certainly a very important thing for you to do. There's all kinds of ways for you to be involved in the proclamation of God's Word. And if you believe what this passage teaches, you're going to be doing that. You'll see the value of it, the necessity of it, and you'll have a desire to do it. You'll be praying for the advancement of Christ's kingdom through his word. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. Every one of us need to renew our commitment to God's word. Do you have a, a daily time of Bible reading? Do you follow a Bible reading schedule? That's something every Christian can do. I'm convinced every Christian should do. And yet I find that only a very small of my minority of Christians actually do. Why not? Don't we believe what the Bible tells us about the importance of God's Word? Don't we treasure it? Don't we value it? Don't we understand that that's where the power of God is? We need to renew our commitment to God's Word. And secondly, we need to submit sweetly to the Father's pruning, sweetly. Reflect upon the last several months in your life. Have you had examples of pruning in your life? How have you responded to that? With submission and sweetness, humility and surrender to the Heavenly Father? Or have you been complaining, critical, questioning, unbelieving, unsubmitted, unsurrendered, not sweet in, in your disposition because of these things, making people around you miserable because of the things that have come into your life that you don't like and you don't think should have happened to somebody like you. You don't understand who you are. 
and you don't understand what is necessary for you to become fruitful. If you are a Christian, this is God's way of making you fruitful. He's pruning you, and he will continue. You're going to have more things in the year ahead. So ask God to give you responses to his pruning that evidence faith and that honor God. Oh, how important this is. Your servants of God, your master proclaim. And how do you do that? By submitting to his word, knowing it and submitting to it. By submitting to his pruning and welcoming it. May God help us to do so. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.